Good morning. Um, if you have the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start in verse 28. Look at the first six verses of chapter 13. Um, Adam and I were talking over the last week and a couple weeks as we've looked ahead at this series and kind of where we were teaching and um, last year when we did this, I had week two, loving others sacrificially, and Adam had living distinctively in the world, and this year we switched those. And we were both talking of how like, we feel like at the last sermon, the, the living distinctively, we should just stand up and say, just do everything you heard the last two weeks and sit down. Because that's, in a sense, the, 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 the mission statement we have is... It's just simply biblically what we're to be as Christians, and it's tied together in such a way that, that you can't really separate any of the three because John teaches if we love God, we'll love who? Each other, right? We'll love the brethren. And this is how we love God. We obey His commandments, according to 1 John, like in that same section. So we love God, therefore we love other people, and we love God, therefore we live distinctively in the world and we obey His commandments. And so there's a sense in which they're all tied together in a way that you can't teach what it is to love God without teaching what it is to love others and to live distinctively. And you can't teach what it is to live distinctively biblically without teaching what it is to love others and love God. They're, they're tied together in such a way. And so today, we really are going to be just looking at, from, from Hebrews, really not an exhaustive way, but practical ways flowing out of the truths that we've heard of who's God is, who God is and His love for us and our love for Him and therefore our love for each other practical ways we just live that out um, so I, I hope you're encouraged in that today is this will encourage you and grow you in loving God and loving um, others sacrificially um, as we look at really practically how to how to do that um, Hebrews chapter 12 we're going to start in verse 28 we're going to read through verse 6 of chapter 13 Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Our triune God, as Peter proclaimed to, to Jesus when he asked if they would depart also, and Peter said, where can we go? For you alone have the words of life. Father, we acknowledge that in your Scriptures you have 
given us the words of life. You have pointed us to You and to Your commandments and to what it is to obey You and love You and follow You. So Father, I pray that today You would, in Your Word, give us life and sanctification and love for You and love for each other. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. So again, we looking at Hebrews, we studied this um, some time back. And we've looked at loving God supremely. We've looked at loving others sacrificially. And today we're, again, going to look at living distinctively in the world, a.k.a. how to practically love God and love others. Sufficient, or love God supremely and love others sacrificially. And we're gonna we're gonna begin in how to live distinctively in the world by looking at this distinctive worship we are to have for God. Distinctive love, distinctive worship. I, I don't think the two are necessarily bifurcated from one another. Look at verse twenty-eight. There, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be. Shaken, the writer of Hebrews here, again, starting this sentence with therefore, and as Adam reminded us last week, if we see therefore, we need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And so the writer of Hebrews has just come out of pointing them back to Sinai with the trembling of the mountain, the thunder, the smoke, the command to not go near the mountain lest they be struck dead. This holy terror that came upon the mountain to the point of where the people said, Moses, don't let God speak to us again. You go talk to Him and come back and tell us what He said. But then the, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we, we now don't go to Zion, or Sinai, we go to Zion. We no longer go to the trembling mountain, we go to Mount Zion. Through Christ, we have access to God. And coming immediately out of that in verse 25 and 26 and 27, he speaks of this idea, look, look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The writer of Hebrews, in light of this reality that we have received a kingdom, that when the earth yet or when the Lord yet again shakes all things, that all things that are created and made will be shaken and destroyed, that those things that cannot be shaken will endure forever. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to that and saying, therefore now let us be grateful to the Lord because we have received such a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A couple of points here. One, we have received this. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to be grateful and to, to worship with gratitude in the midst of this because of this kingdom that cannot be shaken and we're to worship with gratitude in it because it was given to us. It's not a kingdom that we've earned. It's not a kingdom that we've created. It's not a kingdom that we've made. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. 
We've been looking and being taught about the kingdom of God. This unshakable kingdom that will never fade and never go away and never be destroyed and has no end. And we, according to Paul and Colossians, have been transferred from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This kingdom that is unshakable, this kingdom that will endure forever, that we are now a part of, understand, dear brother and sister, you've been given this kingdom. And in understanding that we've been given a kingdom that will not be destroyed, that will endure forever, there should be a gratitude that grows in us and a thankfulness toward God because of the work He has done in us. So the writer of Hebrews, and again looking at this idea of living distinctively, we're to live distinctively in the world by having a a grateful worship toward God and an understanding that we are now a part of a kingdom that will not be shaken and has no end. We walk and display a gratitude to Yahweh for this. We live distinctively in the world because we live as if Well, not as if, because we know that this world will one day end and our kingdom will not. We live as pilgrims in this world understanding that this world is fading away. And all that is in it is fading away. And therefore we hold the possessions of this world loosely, knowing they will come to an end. We're constantly reminded of this reality. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning for that day when all things will be made new. We see that groaning all around us. We were reminded of it weeks ago when the hurricane hit Florida. We're reminded of the reality that this earth is groaning under sin and yearning for that day when all things will be made right. And we're reminded in the midst of those groanings that in a moment the things of this world can be taken away, whether that be life or possessions. But yet we who are of the kingdom are marked by a gratitude toward God and an understanding that this world is not it. So we're to live in a distinctive worship in our gratitude. We're also to live in a distinctive worship in our our worship and our reverence and all that comes in it. Look at what the writer says at the end of verse 28. So we're to be grateful to God because of this kingdom that cannot be shaken that we've received. And thus, or so, therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We are to be those who worship in light of this truth that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are to offer to God worship that is acceptable. And this worship that is acceptable is worship that is given in reverence and in awe. Notice again the language here. It doesn't just say offer to worship of our own making and of our own kind. But we're to worship God with an acceptable worship that is marked by reverence and marked by an awe of who He is and a reverence in the reality of who He is and who we are worshiping. This is not a worship that is according to our own desires and makings. 
This isn't a worship that is according to, to our own flesh and man-made inventions. But this is a worship that is according to, to God's Word and to who He is and to how He has commanded us. And then look at the caveat and the reason for us worshiping in that way in reverence and in awe because our God is a consuming fire. We look at our so-called worship that takes place all around us and we'll, we'll look at the reality of, of the world, but even within the professed church, we see this so-called worship that takes place and we see the videos and we see the pastors who turn the pulpit into a comedy club and we see music and, and there's, there's this church out of Florida. I can't even remember the, the name of the church. It's irrelevant. But I mean, they've got anything from a girl dressed up like Tina Turner and I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole seen the videos, and they're up there singing Proud Mary, or they've got like dinosaurs and all this stuff going on. It's a carnival show. We have all this stuff wrapped up that we call worship, and it's not marked by reverence and awe, and it's not marked by gratitude. Why? Because we've lost light of the reality that our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we make worship what we want it to be. But we who are His people are to be marked and distinct from the world in the way that we worship the God that we call Father. Because we understand He is a consuming fire. This, this reference to a consuming fire is, is quoted directly from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, where it's written, Take care lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God which He made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. In other words, worship the Lord with reverence and awe. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We see examples of that in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. If you're familiar with the story, Nahab and Abihu put strange fire upon the altar. Burned strange incense as priests and they basically decide to worship in their own way. And what happens to them? The Lord literally comes out in a fire and consumes them. We referenced it earlier. Um, Adam did whenever he read our call to worship from Chronicles and we see the ark being brought in on a cart which it shouldn't have been brought in anyway in that manner and it starts to fall and Uzzah does what? He reaches out his hand to stop the ark from falling on the ground and what happens to Uzzah? He's struck dead in a moment because our God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. We see it in Hebrews chapter 10 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Or even in the immediate context that the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to with the mountain of Sinai. Again, remember the picture that takes place there. God tells Moses beforehand, I'm going to come down upon the mountain. Get everybody ready. Mark off the mountain, rope off the mountain, because when I come upon it, if anybody touches the mountain, you're to put them to death. And you're going to put them to death by stoning them or shooting them with arrows because you're not even going to touch them. 
And even if the livestock goes on the mountain, you're going to kill it the same way because my holiness is upon the mountain and you cannot approach it. And God's holiness descends upon the mountain and there's thunder and there's trumpets and the Lord speaks and the mountain trembles and the people quivering under the holiness of God, again, as referenced earlier, tell Moses, don't don't let him talk to us. You talk to us, but we can't listen to Him. As Matthew Henry said in his commentary on the whole Bible, says, Though He be our God in Christ, and now deals with us in a more kind and gracious way, yet He is in Himself a consuming fire, that is, a God of strict justice, who will avenge himself on all the despisers of his grace and upon all apostates. It seems that in the American church we have lost all sight of this. We've lost all sight of this reality that we're to worship the Lord in reverence and in awe for He is a consuming fire. We've lost light of the reality that yes, we get to call Him Father, but let's not forget who we get to call Father. Not just in the world, but even in the church. And I think it flows out in the world because the church has propagated it to them because we try to make God friendly to them. We've got this idea that that God somehow set aside His justice and God somehow set aside the nature of His holiness and now He's just all love and cushiness and He's a cuddly old teddy bear that we can just cuddle up with and have no fear of. Understand, again, to somewhat paraphrase Matthew Henry, yes, He is gracious and good to us in Christ, but let's not forget He is the holy, just, righteous God of the universe who will destroy His enemies. Therefore, let us not be flippant in the way that we supposedly worship Him. Let us not be flippant in the way that we speak of Him. Let us not be flippant in the way that we represent Him in the world around us. Yes, let us proclaim His grace. Yes, let us proclaim His mercy. Let's proclaim the reality that He is a holy, just God who is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And in that, we should be distinct in the world in the way that we worship. In a world that seeks to worship everything but God, let us be distinct in that we worship nothing but God. Let us be distinct as we live among the world that says we can worship the trees and the mountains and the skies and the stars and our pets and our dogs and our jobs and we can worship everything openly but we dare not worship God openly. Let us be distinct in the world as we show them that He alone is the one who is worthy of our worship. And He's to be worshipped joyfully but He's to be worshipped reverently. I hope that comes across whenever we do what we do every Sunday. I know there's times where it's weighty. 
And I know there's times where it's somber. And I know there's times where we speak of the, the dear refuge of our weary souls and it's not the, the, the everybody snapping and clapping. And sometimes we do. But I hope you get the, 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 the reality that when we do that and we're intentional when we do that, that we're not trying to rob it of joy. We want there to be joy when we gather here on Sunday. There should be joy when we gather here on Sunday. But we want it to be a reverent joy. And we want it to be a joy that is marked by all of who He is. So we should be distinct in our worship because we worship God alone and we worship Him in reverence and in awe. And even among those who profess Him, we see distinctions of those who speak of Him and they seek to worship Him and yet they worship Him in flippant, man-centered ways of their own creation and their own workings. that yet we're to be distinct and that we worship only God and we worship Him in reverence and in all and we worship Him according to the way He's commanded us to do so. Again, we don't come to Him through Sinai. We come to Him through Zion. We come to Him with gratitude. We come to Him with joy because we have a kingdom that will not be shaken. And we come to Him in reverence and awe because of who He is. And in that, we will be distinct from the world. Because the world either seeks to deny Him, they seek to neuter Him, or they seek to worship Him in whatever way they see fit. But we are to worship Him in gratitude and in reverence and in awe in light of who He is. So we see there's to be a distinct worship as we seek to live among the world. And that flows out of this, what we saw week one. We're to love God supremely. That's going to lead to a distinct worship if we love Him for who He is rightly. But now flowing out of the reality that we're to love others sacrificially. Look at verse 13, or, or chapter 13, verse 1. And we see that there's a distinct sacrifice among us. And a distinct love among us. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The first point the writer of Hebrews gets here is let brotherly love continue. And I would argue verse 2 and verse 3 flow out of that. Let brotherly love continue. How? Show hospitality to strangers. Now again, I want to... Know what he's saying and what he's not saying here. It seems clear, especially if you go down to verse 3, the end of it, since you also were in the body, speaking of those in prison. It seems the context here. He's speaking of how we relate to other brothers and sisters in Christ. This idea of showing hospitality to strangers does not mean anybody randomly we see walking down the street, let's take him in our home. There may be a context in which we find ourselves doing that, but I don't think that's the command here. The idea of strangers was what would... People would travel at that time. They would go in. Everything didn't have the Holiday Inn Express where you could wake up and be as smart as a doctor the next day. Like They didn't have those things then. You would travel around and you were at times dependent upon people to take you in. He's showing here this reality that we're to be hospitable to, to strangers who are brothers and sisters in Christ. When they come into town, we're to show hospitality to them. We're to serve them. We're to care for them. Whether they be passing through and visiting or whether they be 
new and moving to the area, we're to show hospitality to strangers, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ who we do not know, we're to be marked by hospitality toward them. Why? Because you're family. I don't know you, never met you, but you're family. We're going to serve you. We're going to show hospitality to you. We're going to help care for you. We're going to provide for you. We're going to help you get settled in and make sure you've got what you need. We're to be marked by hospitality to our brothers and sisters, even those who we may not know. Because we are in the body together. He even gets on here that in so doing we may have entertained angels unawares. Because we are showing hospitality to those who are His. Even somewhat bringing to mind, even now as I'm speaking of Remembering back to when Pastor Jimmy spoke out of Matthew and Jesus said, I'm speaking of that day of judgment. You gave me something. I was, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was cold and you clothed me. And I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, when did we do it? If you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Again, look, speaking of the brothers and sisters there in that context. Likewise here. The writer of Hebrews speaking of this idea of showing hospitality to strangers and even at times we may have entertained angels without even knowing it. We're to be marked by hospitality toward those who are in the body of Christ. We're to show sacrifice in that, but then we're also to show sacrifice in the way we identify with those who are suffering for the gospel. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. The writer of Hebrews points to this reality that we are to identify with our persecuted brothers and sisters. We're to remember those who are in prison. A couple of things here. One, it's not speaking of everybody who is in prison. Again, go to the end of verse 3, since you also are in the body. It seems to be speaking of those who are in the body, who are in prison, seemingly in prison for the sake of the gospel. Remember them. And it doesn't mean remember them exclusively. I don't think it's less than this. But it doesn't mean remember them as, oh, I remember them in my mind and I remember John and I remember that John's in prison. I think it's pointing more actively to remember them as in go and care for them. Go visit them. Make sure their needs are met. Because again, in this context, a lot of times you would have been dependent upon People you knew bringing you what you needed or else you didn't have it. And there would have been a fear of, well, if I go and I'm identified with the one who's in prison because he's a believer, then what are they going to realize about me? I'm a believer with him, and therefore what might happen with me, I may be beside him. But the writer of Hebrews says we're to remember those who are in prison. Those who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, we're not to draw away from them. We're to remember them. We're to make sure they're cared for. We're to identify with them. As if you're in prison with them. As if you're locked up right beside them. And also those who are mistreated. So maybe they're not in prison. Maybe they just lost their job. Maybe they're beaten. Maybe they've been shunned by their community and their family. Identify with them. Care for them. Sacrifice for them. Why? Because you also are in the body. They are a part of you and you are a part of them. 
Again, Adam referenced back to it last week, this idea of membership. It's a biological membership. It's the same as my fingers and toes and hands and arms being a member of my body. We are members of the body one with another. And not just here, more closely here, but with the body of Christ at large. So therefore, we're to remember those. We're to have a distinctive sacrifice on behalf of those who are in the body that we show hospitality to them, if we, even if we don't know them, and we identify with them even if they're being persecuted and mistreated, even to the point of imprisonment. In a world that forsakes those who are outcasts and seems to only befriend those who are advantageous to them, we are to be distinct in that we are committed to our family and we serve them, even if it identifies us with them in their hardship. And even if it cost us, we're to live distinctively in the world in the way that we love each other, in the way that we care for one another. Then we're to live distinctively in our faithfulness. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Here the writer of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor. Or let it be seen as precious or of great worth. Let it be held up. Let it, be, let it have a, a preciousness and a weight among us. We are to be those who see marriage as the good gift of God that it is. And we're to speak of it and we're to act in it. And we're to relate to it in a way that shows that it is precious. And that it is of great value and worth. And flowing from that, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Or untainted. And he gives the reasoning for that because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Whereas Paul says, um, multiple places, that the sexually immoral and the adulterous and the homosexual and, and those who live in this lifestyle will by no means inherit the kingdom of God. We who are a part of this kingdom that is unshakable are to live distinctively in the world in the way that we view marriage, speak of marriage, and live out marriage. We're to hold it up as precious and we're to remain faithful in it. And those who don't, I'm just quoting Scripture here, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In a world where marriage is belittled and avoided, we're to honor it. I come across things as I'm listening to podcasts or I'm, articles will come up or something of that nature, and this just growing trend in the delayed age of marriage. People are putting it off more and more. Cohabitations taking the place of marriage. 
Marriage is seen as a hindrance and an obstacle to getting where we want to go. It's seen as some man-made construct that we can avoid and do away with. In a world that treats marriage as something that's just okay for you, maybe not okay for me, and this thing that's kind of just this tag-along thing that's to be put off and maybe one day we'll get to. We who are the people of God are to show that marriage is a good gift that is precious and valuable. Whether or not we're married. Some of you are, some of you aren't. Doesn't mean we're to hold marriage in honor any less whether or not we're married. We're to speak of marriage. We're to relate to those who are married. If we are married, we're to speak of our spouse and speak of our marriage in a way that shows that it is precious and of great value and something to be honored. And in a world where infidelity is almost as if it seems to be integrated into the system, where what used to bring shame and would try to be done in secret now is like openly just there and nobody seems to care. In that world, we're to live distinct as those who are faithful and walk in holiness and purity and repentance. And in that... Maybe some who find themselves in the midst of being in the need of repentance in, in this area. And disregarding marriage, disregarding your own marriage, belittling the spouse, speaking poorly of marriage. Maybe you've been unfaithful and never repentant. Maybe you're in the midst of unfaithfulness now or maybe you're constantly putting in something in front of your eyes that you know you don't need to see. Don't lose sight of what we've already said. Our God is a consuming fire and here in verse 4, He will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Praise be to God for 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, And such were some of you. there is grace and mercy for those who would repent and look to Christ. But we who are His people are to be distinct in our faithfulness in our marriage in a world that is anything but. So we're to have a distinct worship, a distinct love and sacrifice, a distinct faithfulness. And then in verse 5, we see we're to have a distinct contentment. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Again, I would argue all of this is flowing out of this reality that we have a kingdom that is unshakable, that cannot be shaken. Therefore, we're to identify with those and, and sacrificially love those who are also a part of that kingdom because we know they're going to be with us. We're a part of the body with them. We're to live distinctively in our marriage and we're to live distinctively content. Look at what he says. Keep your life free from the love 
of money. It doesn't say keep your life free from money. When Paul speaks of, of money in that verse, it's oft quoted. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says what is the root of all kinds of evil? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there's a reason I point that out. You can be broke as a joke and be guilty of being consumed with the love of money. And you can have more money than you know what to do with and be free from the love of money. The amount of money we have has nothing to do with our, our consumption or being consumed by it. Yes, do we often find people who have lots of money and what do they, what do they say they want? More? We can find just as many people who don't have two pennies to rub together and they're, they're consumed with the love of money and if I could just get this, if I could just get that, then everything would be better. I'm not taking away the necessity to, to have food and those kind of things. I'm not speaking of that, but there's a difference in that and being consumed with the love of money. But here, the writer of Hebrews commands us, keep yourself free from the love of money. And then goes beyond that and be content with what you have. Why? What reason does the writer of Hebrews give for us being free from the love of money and being content? Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's the basis of our being free from the love of money? What's the basis of us being content with, as the old hymn says, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul? What, what's the basis of that according to the writer of Hebrews? Because of the promise of God that He would never leave us nor forsake us. Which means we can look at the world and we can look at the possessions of the world and we can look at all the things of the world and say, if I got you, I got you. If I don't, I don't. But I know I've always got Him, so whatever. I can have money, I cannot have money. I can have food, I cannot have food. I can have a house, I cannot have a house. I can have a job, I cannot have a job. I can have a family, I cannot have a family. but He'll never leave me nor forsake me. So therefore, whatever that faithful God who is my King gives me or takes away from me, with that we're to be content. I don't have to ask How many of you struggle with this? Because there's no point in getting everyone to raise your hand or to make some of you out to be liars. We fight this. There's always this thing in us that if I could just get that thing, or if this thing would just go away, if I could just get to where I make this much a year, if I could get that promotion, if I could get that house, if we could live in that part of town, if I just had the, the, the newer this or the newer that, it's bred into everything around us. Everything we get, by the time we get at home, the shine has worn off and it's outdated and they've already come out with a new one. 
And we're constantly consumed with wanting something that we don't have or getting rid of something that we do have and thinking that those things will make it. If I could, if I could get that, then I'll be content. Let, let me tell you, if you're not content where you are, you won't be content when you get there. I know. I've been there. I am there. I still, I'll be there again. But we have the unshakable promise that this God who has redeemed us, who has given us a kingdom that will not be shaken and will not fade away, He's given us the promise that He will not leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, we can be content. Understand me. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 4. Verse that often gets ripped out of context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's not talking about passing a test you didn't study for. And he's not talking about hitting a home run or nailing it in the boardroom whenever you have to do a presentation. He's speaking of I've known what it is to have food and I know what it is to do without. I've learned in all situations to be content because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Understand, dear Christian, Contentment is not this elusive thing that hangs out here that we're just told to do that we'll never do. You can be content. But we'll only be content whenever we're content in Him. Whenever we rest in the truth of who Christ is and the strength He gives us and this promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Then we're content. J.C. Ryle, in speaking of this, particularly with this concept of God saying He would never leave us for, for, or forsake us says this. But this is not all. There's a particular depth of wisdom in these words, I will never leave nor forsake. Observe God does not say, My people shall always have pleasant things. They shall always be fed in green pastures and have no trials, or trials very short and few. He neither says so, nor does He appoint such a lot to His people. On the contrary, He sends them affliction and chastisement. He tries them by suffering. He purifies them by sorrow. He exercises their faith by disappointments. But still in all these things He promises, I will never leave nor forsake. And in that, dear Christian, in a world consumed by greed, In a world consumed by the lie that if they just get that thing, they'll be happy. In a world constantly running after the new and shiny. We're to live distinct in that we're content with whatever the Lord gives and whatever the Lord takes away. We're to live with a satisfied restfulness. And when they can look at us and say, you're in this situation. How are you content in this? We can say because he, he hadn't left me. If He hadn't left me, I'm not lacking anything. In a world that constantly calls us to find our trust in what we have, to always be acquiring the next thing, to look out for number one, we live distinctively and that we trust the Lord who will never leave us and rest content in what He gives. So we're to have a distinct worship. We're to have a distinct love and sacrifice. We're to have a distinct faithfulness and a distinct contentment. Then in verse 6, we're to have a distinct trust. 
So, or because He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We're to live distinct in a world that is constantly gripped by fear. Fear of death. Fear of man. The fear of the unknown. The fear of being outcast or persecuted and so everybody just kind of goes along with what they said they're supposed to say and do what they said they're supposed to do with no regard for God. We who are His people are to live distinct in a trust of Him and with a fearless ambition of saying, what can you do to me? He will never leave me nor forsake me. So what can you do to me? We're to live as those distinct in the world who not with reckless abandon, but with an unshakable confidence in a God who is with us and is sovereign over all things to where we can look at the world around us. When they play the music, to reference Daniel chapter 3, and say, bow the knee or, or it's the fire, we can look at them and say, then put it in the fire. Because the most you can do is kill me. But even then, He won't leave me. So I'm okay. Dear Saint, brother, sister in Christ, let us be distinct. Not in that we wear shirts with slogans, we put bumper stickers on our car, those aren't bad in and of themselves. Let us be distinct in how we worship and love God and how we serve and love one another. Let us be distinct that we worship God with reverence and awe and fear. Let us be distinct in that we love each other among the church with sacrifice and among our marriages with faithfulness. Let us be distinct and that come what may, we rest in the sovereign goodness and presence of God and we rest content. Let our distinctiveness flow out of who God is and what He has done for us. And if you say, Booney, I, I hear you. And I'm wrestling with some of these. I don't, I'm struggling with... with, with loving sacrificially. I'm struggling with holding my marriage in honor. I'm struggling with being content. Hear me, this isn't a white knuckle grin it and bear it and just try harder and fake it till you make it. Go back to point one. Love God supremely. See Him for who He is. Because if we love God and we love Him rightly, we see Him for who He is rightly. We will love others sacrificially and we will live distinctively in the world. So go to Him. Seek Him. Plead with Him that He would let you see Him more for who He is through His Word. And cling to Christ who is the great High Priest 
and the one who saves us from the God who is an all-consuming fire. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have called us to live distinctively. Father, we know that even in that, we can't do that on our own. That flows from you. That flows from an understanding of who you are. That flows out of the reality of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ and who we now are in Him. And Father, I pray that you would grow us and and anchor us in this foundation of who you are and this kingdom that we have that is unshakable. And in that, that we would worship you rightly. And in that, that we would love each other rightly. And in that, that we would have an unshakable contentment and confidence, come what may. Father, we praise you that you are the giver of the grace that enables and imparts all of these things to us. For left to ourselves, we would worship the created over the Creator. We would forsake all else for our own good. And we would be consumed for the love of this world and the things of it. But God, in Your grace, You have transferred us from this domain of darkness and You have transferred us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son that is unshakable. And in that, You've given us hearts of flesh that we would worship You. That we would love You and love those who are Yours and rest and trust in Your faithful promise to never leave. It's in Christ our High Priest that we pray these things. Amen.